0: Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Hello, folks. Scott Postman, Joffrey Swade here with part two of C.S. Lewis's Learning in Wartime.
1: This part two is uh, our how we show our... Gentle Contempt for Time Limits, (laughs) (laughs) Well, we actually sort of, we anticipated this happening. So we are looking at C.S. Lewis's wonderful essay, Learning in in Wartime, delivered to a bunch of Oxford students, I believe it was Oxford, in 1939, and we think highly relevant to us today. So Lewis just got done, um, you know, speaking unfavorably (laughs) of the the great educational model, Matthew Arnold, uh, and he's about to, to quote Francis Bacon favorably. So let's dive right in. Do it. By leading that life to the glory of God, I do not, of course, mean any attempt to make our intellectual inquiries work out to edifying conclusions. That would be, as Bacon says, to offer to the author of truth the unclean sacrifice of a lie. I mean the pursuit of knowledge and beauty in a sense for their own sake, but in a sense which does not exclude their being for God's sake. An appetite for these things exists in the human mind, and God makes no appetite in vain." We can therefore pursue knowledge as such and beauty as such in the sure confidence that by so doing we are either advancing to the vision of God ourselves or indirectly helping others to do so. Humility, no less than the appetite, encourages us to concentrate simply on the knowledge of the beauty, not too much concerning ourselves with their ultimate relevance to the vision of God. That relevance may not be intended for us, but for our betters, for men who come after and find the spiritual significance of what we dug out in blind and humble obedience to our vocation
0: beautiful. You have some comments, I'm sure.
1: Sure. but You must have some comments <laughs> as well. Are you saying that because of the Matthew Arnold, Francis Bacon thing? Yeah.
0: Well, we we were joking before and, and yeah, I, you know, I, I know you wanted to be very, you know, um, kind and articulate, but Lewis pretty much trashes yeah. <laughs> right? Matthew Arnold and then holds bacon up in esteem. Um, but by leading this uh th- that life he says to the glory of god i do not of course mean that any attempt to make our intellectual inquiries work out to edifying conclusions mm. what is he saying
1: here you know he, he he's saying that it's it's not about what our Own self-interest might be right, trying to force the science, if you will. Yeah, yeah, right. And which is really interesting because he ends the portion I read um, with others coming after us and finding the spiritual significance of what we dug out in blind and humble obedience to our vocation. So, if we're called to be scholars, it may be that we don't see why our faithful research into the archives of slave ships in Portugal in the 1600s. (laughs) Yeah. is important to the kingdom of God. Someone so he, else will come along and find it.
0: Right. Well, and he doesn't use this language here, but he's really, he's talking about what we often in, in classical education talk about the great conversation, um, but, but from the perennial human perspective, right? That, mm. in, that in every age, we're all contributing to this understanding of the cosmos and this world that we live in. We're all taking part in it.
1: Right. So this relevance... Um, that you know, men who come after may find what our what the relevance of our work was. Um, so, he, so Lewis says, this is the teleological argument, that the existence of the impulse and the faculty prove that they must have a proper function in God's scheme. The argument by which Thomas Aquinas probes that sexuality would have existed even without the fall. The soundness of the argument as regards culture is proved by experience. The intellectual life is not the only road to God, nor the safest, but we find it to be... A road, and it may be the appointed road for us. Of course, it will be so only so long as we keep the impulse pure and disinterested. That is the great difficulty. As the author of the Teologia Germanica says, we come, we may come to love knowledge, our knowing, more than the thing known, to delight not in the exercise of our talents, but in the fact that they are ours, or even in the reputation they bring us. Every success in the scholar's life increases this danger. If it becomes irresistible, he must give up his scholarly work. The time for plucking out the right eye has arrived.
0: <laughs> well, There's a lot in this. Oh man, I feel like he's talking about vainglory here, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. And and this is so uh, important for the day and age which we live because of the social media, and the internet, yeah. where everybody's trying to be a life coach or they want to be yeah. some sort of influencer. Or some, it's like that. It you know this existentialist sort of living.
1: And you know, these are the vices of the academy, by the way, oh, made yes. popular. Yes, right. So he's this is a jab. He's taking a little moment away from the students to, to just to make fun of the academy as a whole. <laughs> and I grew up in an academic family, and and I have, I mean, I have to say that the vainest people I knew, the most competitive as far as the competing with each other and, and being acknowledged by their peers. It's, it's academics and it's dumb.
0: Yeah, it is. It's it's
1: a kind. But we all of, do it now.
0: Well, it's a yeah. We we've democratized this vainglory, right. right? Now everybody has a platform to to be. I can
1: be a life coach. Vainly I can be, glorious. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and what he's saying is, if we recognize that our own calling and vocation is part of a bigger story, and and that we're just to be faithful no matter what's going on in the world to that calling, that's where it's going to become important.
1: You know, I think it's really interesting how you know once again just you know perspective is really is really the key that he's bringing in here you know proper function uh, the idea that that the intellectual life is not just uh, it's not the only road and it's not the safest road you know what we find it to be we find it to be a road, a road. One, one of many. <laughs> that's the kind of perspective. But that's that's exactly right. that's the yeah. sort of perspective that most people need when they think about their field. Yeah. Right. They think that their work is the most important work.
0: This is the yes. way to go, and everybody should join me in this work.
1: Yeah. That is the essential nature of the learned life, as I see it. But it has indirect values which are especially important today. If all the world were Christian, it might not matter if all the world were uneducated. That oh, yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I just wanted to, to kind of sit in stunned silence, but if you got stuff to say, say it. I'll read well, it again. Go ahead. If all the world were Christian, it might not matter if all the world were uneducated. Yeah, because what is
0: education? If if we have a true education, the goal is virtue and wisdom, but isn't that just what Christianity provides? I mean, and that's yeah. why we've said over and over in this podcast and at other times that, you know, true Christianity classical christian
1: education is raising your kids to the glory it's of god the formation of the man right, right that's right exactly and so if we're all being formed into men if you know if the world were christian there's so much there i feel like that uh, the moment in the in the meme where i'm about to wreck this service home as career you know like everyone's like oh <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not even visualizing who, who he's destroying, but I, I feel like someone just got dunked on. Somebody did. <laughs> but as it is, a cultural life will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and, the, and to betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. And just as a side note, um, uh, philosophers... Were Nazis and Nazis were philosophers? Yeah. I mean, this isn't—you know—this stuff didn't exist in a vacuum. The academy was was affected by the enemies of humanity,
0: and, and yeah, we can see that. We've even We've talked happening about the today. Germans yeah, before. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like but this next line, this is this is the greatest.
1: Good philosophy must exist if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Yeah. Stop and dunking on people. By the way, like the whole reason we decided <laughs> to do two parts because we knew it was, was going to get intense. In the yes. The second,
0: second part. So, so full of, <laughs> of things to talk about, but, but this idea of, even in, in the church and, and oftentimes Christians have this, you know, negative perspective um, about philosophy or humanism because of the associations with atheism and, and anti theism and, um, all kinds of, of, you know, unchristian things. But what Lewis brings up here is we who are learned or are able to be learned are really in some ways, you know, like Romans 14 and 15, the stronger serving the weaker yes. by being able to answer these questions that maybe somebody isn't capable of doing. Just like the soldier who may be healthy and strong uh, is able to go out and fight a bad enemy when somebody who's elderly or, or incapacitated in some way couldn't do that. We all have strengths and we should be serving to the glory of God in those.
1: Well, I mean, speaking of the soldier who goes out to fight and, you know, so that someone elderly doesn't have to, uh, I think it's also helpful to think of that, that young, strong soldier who's out there and, you know, we make fun of propaganda, but, If, if the soldier isn't seeing the communications coming from, you know, the, the magazine articles, isn't seeing the posters, you know, isn't, isn't seeing the TV shows that sort of show him he's appreciated and that he's fighting for a good cause, you know, that, that, that sort of stuff has an effect when the replacements come, you know, are the replacements arriving with good cheer, right? Is, is the road that brought the, with the truck to bring the soldiers to reinforce him, was that thing well paved all of that. I mean, you know, I think I think Marshall in uh, in in the 40s and during World War II, he talked about you know, the fact that the nine out of ten soldiers were actually not at the front.
0: Right. Right. So we yes. always
1: think of the soldier at the front, but it took nine men to get that one okay. man to the point of the spear, and all of those men are important. And intellectuals are usually not actually at the tip of the spear, right. but they are the ones giving strength. Like I think of you know even just apologetics. I'm going to hurt some feelings when I say this, but uh, you know, apologetics I think is one of the lower Christian philosophies mm-hmm. because it's so practical. But that's what makes it so worth doing, right? right. And the people who use it are not the philosophers. The philosophers write the books, but they're writing it for the dude who is going to go out into a street corner. And the philosopher's not doing that. Right.
0: The the is <laughs> <philosopher's> back <laughs> in the Academy doing it. Right.
1: Yeah. But, but this is what he's been saying all along
0: in terms of our vocation, in terms of the, the, the human world that we live in that, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to go back to that Vainglory comment where we tried to separate out some particular, uh, occupation or vocation or some particular you know, uh, person to be the guy or right. to be the field when that's not the way the world works.
1: Yeah. We're all working together. Yeah. The cool intellect must work not only against cool intellect on the other side, but against the muddy heathen mysticism which deny intellect altogether. Most of all, perhaps we need intimate knowledge of the past not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future and yet need something to set against the present to remind us that periods and that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. Oh There's so much there.
0: Could, wow. could he not have written that in this, you know, in this particular generation. Yeah. Yeah. There there is a way that we get outside of our own provincial, you know, knowledge and, and through academics or through traveling that he's, he's talking about the person who has a sense of how the world works, how human beings work in, in these things. And they're not deceived by that, you know, uh, that piece of propaganda, But a man who's lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local heirs of his native village, right? He can see beyond what – not just the propaganda but the short-sightedness.
1: Right. I mean travel is so – travel is one of the things that's so important. like studying history, which is a form of travel, you know, is what Lewis is talking about. But I was in a conversation recently with my daughter. Uh, She took a gap year and she's starting at New St. Andrews next year. And, And, you know, I was talking to her about how glad I was that she had had the chance to travel. You know, she was not as adventurous as some, but she went out there, she went to another country and she had, you know, she did a thing and it was great, you know, but we were, we were talking about the significance of what that travel had. And I said, you know, when I, so I homeschooled, um, but you know, I I had this upbringing where, you know, I I lived in a lot of different places. Um, and, but then there was one other thing. So when I got, I got to college and I was less innocent, more worldly than all the, Public school kids I knew, except I was still a virgin. <laughs> 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 it wasn't. It wasn't actually the travel that was mm-hmm. part of it. It was all the books.
0: Right, you traveled
1: through books. Yeah, I mean that's a real thing. It is, and it wasn't like some pie in the sky because you could read. You could read pie in the sky books all day and and go nowhere. Right. Right. Um, uh, as much as, as you know, as the, the, I think it was, was it Lewis's line about the, about people not wanting escapism being the jailers? Right, right. That but was Tolkien,
0: but Tolkien. Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. But, 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 you know, the, the reason that that whole little conversation exists is because there is the danger of simply reading to forget, yeah. reading to flee, right? If, but if that's not the kind of reading you're doing, you really are traveling. where where, the way history can help you travel. And this has really been on my mind with, with this crisis and the Mm -hmm. way Christians have been reacting uh, to the war. You know, I was, I was was talking to to someone recently and I said, you know, I, I wish that, that, people read more fairy tales and fewer fables. Yeah. Right. That's good. Um, I wish Christians took their own lives more lightly. I wish that, you know, Christians, so you know, I wish Christians would party more, but uh, I also wish they wouldn't party so desperately when they do party. Right. right, like, right. You know, like, I know, like, um, and, and.
0: That's a great, that's a great line. Party <laughs> more, but not so, not desperately. so desperately. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. so great.
1: Uh, but then, you know, part of that conversation was I wish Christians would travel more and, you know, so, you know, people were asking about that, but you know, it's, it's not about going to like, Oh, look, I can check this you know, destination off my list. It's about actually being able to change your perspective to hold your own perspective a little more lightly in the sense to be at ease and a history book can deliver that as well.
0: Well, I want to just—I know we want to move on and, and read here, but
1: uh, we're not going to have a part three.
0: One—one <laughs> one of the first parts that you mentioned, and I think this would be really good for you to unpack, even just if you did it briefly. You know, more fairy tales and less fables. I think that's such an important line.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose all I mean by that is that um, to be less concerned with like what—what what is the precise practical moral mm-hmm. here, yeah. right? Uh, you know, so you know, there's a very there's a very definite moral. Uh, to the story of, uh, of the fox and the raven. Yeah. Right. You know, a- Aesop's stories are not fairy tales. You may think that they are, but they're not. They are telling you very specific behaviors to follow for success. None There's not a place in there, but th- that is, that is, tending towards the monomaniac or is what is the path of success instead of holding a little more lightly to, you know, having a bigger perspective and just telling a story about the triumph of the gospel, which Little Red Riding Hood is.
0: Yes. Well, I, when, when you said that, um, I love that you brought back that monomaniac comment, because what I envisioned in my mind when I heard you say that is thinking about the very specific allegorical moral that is coming out of Aesop's fable versus here's an alternative perspective of history, which... Aristotle said when you look at history you're looking at what happened when you look at mm-hmm. philosophy it's or, or um, poetry sorry you're looking at something more philosophical what could happen right? right and I think there's something very very important about that when you mentioned the fairy tale versus the fable that was just a great comment and so I wanted to.
1: It sounds to me like our next, uh, our next episode is going to be a defense of science fiction but let's not go there alright so most of all says C.S. Lewis we need an intimate knowledge of the past okay yeah we already did that the cataract of nonsense. The learned life then is for some a duty. At the moment, it looks as if it were your duty. I am well aware. Remember, he's talking to students here. By the way, sorry. Yeah. I tell my students that all
0: the time. They say, "Well, I want to be this. I want to be no right now. Right now, what you are is, is <laughs> a student. That is God's calling on your life this moment."
1: <laughs> I am well aware that there may seem to be an almost comic discrepancy between the high issues we have been considering and the immediate task you may be set down to, such as Anglo-Saxon sound laws or chemical formulae. But there is a similar shock. Oh, this next part is so, so good. good. Like, hold me right now, Scott. <laughs> but there is a similar shock awaiting us in every. Vocation. A young priest finds himself involved in choir treats, and a young subaltern in accounting for pots of jam. Mm -hmm. It is well that it should be so. It weeds out the vain, windy people and keeps in those who are both humble and tough. On that kind of difficulty, we need waste no <laughs> sympathy. <laughs> and he's saying this to a bunch of snotty, <laughs> like eighteen-year-olds. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I, so I, I'm not sure what else a subaltern might be um, in the in the, the great British context, but one of the things that certainly is is the lowest officer rank, yeah, which is what these guys would likely be in the army if you go into the army. You won't be worrying about Anglo-Saxon laws anymore. You'll be doing jam inventory. Well, and that's so what we- So get some perspective.
0: Right. That's what we always say about people. You know, when you get graduate from college, great, you just got a degree, and now you're ready to make coffee at right. the office. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And when, you know, that that's, you know, I, I guess the reason it got me excited is that I'm, I'm, I mean, it's a lesson that I can hear for myself, but I'm a dad. We're dads, yeah. you and I, you know, it's like, you know, kids need to hear this. All right. But the peculiar difficulty imposed on you by the war is another matter. And of it, I would again repeat what I have been saying in one form or another ever since I started. Do not let your nerves and emotions lead you into thinking your present predicament more abnormal than it really is. Perhaps it may be useful to mention the three mental exercises which which may serve as defenses against the three enemies which war raises up against the scholar. Okay, and so then he's going to talk about these three things, and I think we should go ahead and respond to each one. The first enemy is excitement, the tendency to think and feel about the war when we had intended to think about our work. The best defense is a recognition that in this, as in everything else, the war has not really raised up a new enemy, but only aggravated an old one. There are always plenty of rivals to our work. We're always falling in love or quarreling, looking for jobs or fearing to lose them, getting ill and recovering, following public affairs. If we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. Oh. The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions never come. There are, of course, moments when the pressure of the excitement is so great that any superhuman self-control could not resist it. They come both in war and peace. We must do the best we can.
0: I love it. You know, in, in the context of writers, um, there's a, there's a movie, um, and I don't even know if I should recommend it or not because it's been so long since I've seen it, but it's Chevy chase. I think it's called funny farm where he wants to be this writer or he gets this advance to be a writer and goes out to this farmhouse and, and he's, you know, got the beautiful little cabin and he's going to write the great American novel kind of thing with it, with the money. And, and he, Falls flat and he can't do anything. And I think his wife in the middle of raising kids and and things are, you know, she's over there writing in her spare time and and making it and her novel gets accepted. And, you know, so it's about this conflict between it. But that's sort of the idea that you see so many times people have this, you know, you know, I I need all these distractions cleared so I can get down to my work and the war is going to prevent me from doing it. But no, this is Uh, so convicting.
1: I kind of hate this
0: paragraph. (laughs) Oh, it is. It's just
1: just stabbing right in my heart. It it hurt me
0: when I read one day, um, given just my own situation where this guy said, I wrote my dissertation with my grandkids on my lap. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm crawling under a rock. I can't find anything because I'm like, everybody, leave me alone. I just need to get my, my words in today, you know? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, well, it's <laughs> one of those just bitter, good for yous that yeah. has still, oh, man, the sanctification right there, brother. Right there. Yeah, great. I have, I have great sympathy for you, and of course, you're wrong. Yes, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I, know, I know you <laughs> know that. But I, like, I do, it, oh, I, yeah. man. <laughs> Uh, Okay. Well, the second enemy. This is a perfect bridge. The second enemy is frustration. Mm, (laughs) Okay. The second enemy is frustration. The feeling that we shall not have time to finish. If I say to you that no one, (laughs) guess control yourself, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. You you, you're going to do this. It'll be fine.
0: Uh, That's great.
1: If I say to you that no one has time to finish, that the longest human life leaves a man in any branch of learning, a beginner, I shall seem to you to be saying something quite academic and theoretical. You would be surprised if you knew how soon one begins to feel the shortness of the tether, right? Because he's talking to young people of how many things, even in middle life, we love to say no time for that, too late now, and not for me. But nature herself forbids you to share that experience. A more Christian attitude, which can be attained at any age, is that of leaving futurity in God's hands. We may as well, for God will certainly retain it whether we leave it to him or not. Never, in peace or war, commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. It is only our daily bread that we are encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. Preach it, brother.
0: (laughs) I feel like if I said anything, I would detract from what a great line this is. But when he says this. (laughs) But but I will. Go ahead. When he it. says this, that uh, he, uh, where does he say this? Um, we should, uh, we may as well. For God will certainly retain it, whether we leave it to Him or not. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, whether or not you embrace that we live today and we we do our very best for the Lord today to His glory today, and leave the future to His hands, whether or not you embrace it, accept it, and live that. Yes. That's the way it will be anyway.
1: Well, and, and once again, you know, he, he says, you know, take, turn, take these plans somewhat lightly. Work from moment to moment. I mean, you know, that's been the, the message throughout this whole essay. And I think that's something that's particularly difficult for us to, to handle. Yeah. Um, you know, because we've had such easy lives
0: and could i add to that you're exactly right we have had a easy life so we have a, a new expectation i think probably one that's never really existed in the world before ever at any time in history given us i'm talking about America, north americans
1: it's still in living memory the sure. the, the russians lost 20 million mm-hmm. in uh, 40 million actually in, in world war 2 and it's almost in living memory for the Ukrainians the Holodomor, yeah, what the what the communist government did to them and ba- in basically denying them food and they starved to death in the many millions upon millions. That's you know both of those countries have those legacies, yes. and yet they're still able to write poetry. We may talk about how how depressing their novels are, <laughs> but but you know like there's there's and it, it's you know not just that most of the world can still remember. When things were truly hard. Yes. Yeah.
0: You you reminded me, and this is I'm I'm taking it downhill from here. But you're that meme where it's you know English literature. You know I will yes, die for yes, my yes. country. Whatever <laughs> you know. And you get French. I'll die for love. And you get to the you know uh, I'll die. The, yeah, Russian, the Russians. I will die. die. Yeah. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, let's let's talk about Go the on. third enemy here. The third enemy is fear. War threatens us with death and pain. No man, and especially no Christian who remembers Gethsemane, need try to attain a stoic indifference about these things, but we can guard against the illusions of the imagination. We think of the streets of Warsaw and contrast the deaths there suffered with an abstraction called life. But there is no question of death or life for any of us, only a question of this death or of that, of a machine gun bullet now or a cancer 40 years later. What does war do to death? It certainly does not make it more frequent. 100% of us die, and the percentage cannot be increased. It puts several deaths earlier, but I hardly suppose that that is what we fear. Certainly, when the moment comes, it will make little difference how many years we have behind us. Does it increase our chance of a painful death? I doubt it. As far as I can find out, what we call natural death is usually preceded by suffering, and a battlefield is one of the very few places where one has a reasonable prospect of dying with no pain at all. Does it decrease our chances of dying at peace with God? I cannot believe it. If active service does not persuade a man to prepare for death, what conceivable concatenation of circumstance would? By the way, that would be a lot easier to read. And just pointing out to Lewis, you know, just to, <laughs> hey, Lewis, you could do better. What conceivable concatenation of circumstance
0: could <laughs> he, gets it, he, <laughs> he, he gets that going in there? That
1: yeah, the would oh, yeah, well, uh, I I can see that it's not over yet, but I can see that you're chomping at the bit.
0: Well, I I only just I. I think there's something here that is so foreign to the modern thinking that it's probably almost shocking to some people to hear Lewis. Seems so incredible that he would say such a thing. But how utterly true. 100% of the people, and this people die. And and this goes back to even this whole COVID crisis and the way people have acted about this as if they fear death when all of us are going to face it. This isn't something you get out of. And War, he, the, the fact that he spins war this way is, is incredible. It's wonderful.
1: You know, it, it's just one more way of taking things a little more lightly yes. than we want to.
0: Well, and think about how Lewis died. Lewis died Mm -hmm. himself of a stroke and spent several days in bed before he finally succumbed to, you know, um, the suffering he went through. And he says war may just be that one time where you just die instantaneously without pain.
1: Yeah. That's very possible. Well, I believe he was an artilleryman. Yeah, I think so. So probably quite acquainted with with that possibility. All right. um, So – War does do, does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 do not bother us is that we forget them. Yep. War makes death real to us, and that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. I am inclined to think they were right.
0: We have one paragraph to leave uh, left to read, but, but I want to just mention this real quickly. I don't think, in, by any stretch, I want to qualify this. Lewis is not a warmonger here. No, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, Lewis is advocating for war. thinks the war is a good thing, but it, it goes back again to the perspective in yeah. the fact that here we're dealing with a war. What does that change about our life? Nothing,
1: right? And then, you know, certainly, war is is an elevated and frightening. Time, yes. uh, But you know, Lewis is biblically urging us not to be afraid, right? Right. But also, you know, this must be combined with what he was talking about earlier in the essay. So, I, I, I the reason I chose the word elevated for war is on purpose. Um, he wants us to be elevating the the experience of of fighting really in our everyday lives, everyday, right? Yes. And and that can help put put war a little more in perspective. And as I've said, you know, it's. War truly is awful, but there are other awful things. Sure. Right? There, are, there are coasts upon this world that uh, were, were slave coasts yep. and, and not just coasts in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there, were, there were lands in this world that were famine lands and remain famine lands. There are even lands in this world, Scott, where babies are slaughtered in factories.
0: Uh. By the millions right
1: so here we are yeah in in a war yep. in a sense yep right we're, we're living that way and so if God forbid um, things were to escalate and my own sons were to be um, you know in suddenly in Europe involved in a war, well, I'd be on my knees in prayer and I would be struggling not to, not to be afraid but I, I would also well, one hopes, have the perspective to see that, you know, this is the life that God has called us all to. Right. And yeah. we must behave justly within that life.
0: My my daughter said something, uh, you know, when we were just talking, you know, as grandparents, all of a sudden you have this different perspective for your <laughs> grandkids, you know, you get a little bit softer. And, and, and I think she was repeating something from a sermon, you know, that, that was said, but the fact is she said, if we're, you know, raising our children you know, to, to be dragon slayers, then there's going to be dragons for them to slay. Right. Right. And, and so we ought to be prepared for that and, and recognize that God has called them for such a time as whatever dragons they have to slay in that
1: generation. And remember when you were young, when you dreamed of glorious death, I mean, I'm, 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 I was a boy, you were a boy when you dreamed of being a martyr. You know, when you, when you dreamed of your life meaning something and now you're in middle age and you wonder if your life does mean something, why would you steal that from the young? <laughs> you know, And I'm not talking about whether the war itself is a war that you get sent off to is one that gives you meaning. Right. What I'm saying is that you can live a life that is glorious, whether you die at age 18 or at age 80. Right. And in a hundred years from now how long you lived on <laughs> this life right.
0: isn't really the important things
1: so let's read this last paragraph all the animal life in us all schemes of happiness centered in this world were always doomed to a final frustration in ordinary times only a wise man can realize it now the stupidest of us know <laughs> we see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all along been living and must come to terms with it if we had foolish unchristian hopes about human culture they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, and this is where we get into eschatological stuff that um, I might disagree with. But if we were, if we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city, satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. But if we thought that for some souls and at some times the life of learning humbly offered to God was in its own small way, one of the appointed approaches to the divine reality and the divine beauty, which we hope to enjoy hereafter, We can think so still. Yeah.
0: Now, I don't know Lewis's eschatological perspective, so I'm going to limit my comments or or say I'll comment with the understanding that I, you know, may not have all the facts here. But I don't think he means here in this context of an optimistic eschatology as as Christians would have. I think what he's talking about is the communist idea or the utopian, Mm. you know, the the ideas that uh, I remember an old man said to me one time, um, you know, you. I think he was probably in his 80s or something when he said it to me, but I was young, starting out in the ministry, and he said, if you're not a communist when you're 20, you don't have a heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 40, you don't got a brain. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is that, you know, and everybody, when they're yes. young, you've got these optimistic ideas, but we have to come to reality. And this is what Lewis says. You yeah. come to terms with reality that this isn't how the world works. Right, and hopefully one is
1: educated to the point where, <clears throat> I mean, communism rises up because we live in a godless Right. world, right? Yep. You know, people conceive of, and this is not a 20th century thing. This is before the 20th century. But hey, you know what? We're getting into old uh, episodes yeah. and, <laughs> and new episodes yet to come. Uh, but this chapter, uh, I shouldn't say, shouldn't say chapter, this essay is absolutely wonderful and I think can be really helpful in lending perspective uh, as Alarum's sound. I think so too. Thanks everybody. So long. God bless.